This is the Institute for Music Leadership. Hey. Hey, how's it going, Tessa? Good, how are you? Oh, I'm fine. How are you? <laughs> Hanging in there. Yeah. Excited to wrap up this, you know. Yeah, it's yeah. been like doubly crazy. For you. How are we? Welcome to another episode of Create, Inspire, Lead. I'm Stephen Bigner. You just heard Tessa Nojam, who is going to be conducting today's interview, and she'll be interviewing this man. Here, let me let me let Ari in. I guess. What a nice all these people who have like such nice pictures on their Zoom <laughs> when they first log in. And I'm just a schlub. Mm -hmm. Hi Ari, how are you? Can't can't hear you, yeah. So Yeah. So we had some technical difficulties at first, but after logging out and logging back in. Take two. Take two. There he is. There are those dulcet tones. <laughs> That's better. Okay. Where were we? Right. Tessa will be interviewing this man. My name is Ari Solotov, and I am the founder and an attorney at Solotov Law Group uh, here in Portland, Maine. Ari launched his firm in August 2020, but he's been a lawyer for about five years. Before that, though, he worked for 10 years in the orchestra management field. Mostly in leadership positions at uh, symphony orchestras uh, in Pensacola, Florida, uh, the Louisville Orchestra, the Portland Maine Symphony Orchestra, and then the Philadelphia Orchestra. So um, I definitely saw a lot of the country through uh, working with classical music organizations before pivoting to law. And do you, do you perform as well? Not currently, no. <laughs> Um, I have I have a piano at home that I stare at longingly. <laughs> Thankfully, Ari took a little bit of time off to stop staring longingly at his piano and answer a few questions from Tessa. Now, Tessa is majoring in tuba performance, and she's also pursuing a law degree. In fact, at the time of this taping, she was just getting ready to submit both law school applications and grad school applications to music schools. So I started my applications, they're due in January, but um, I don't know, I guess I just have to fill them out. <laughs> That's basically it. Um, but yeah, I submitted all my music, like grad school stuff on December 1st. So you're still applying to, to music schools as well and sort of straddling both worlds. Yeah, I'm trying to find a school that will let me pursue both at the same time, but um, it's more of like, I have to get accepted into both programs and then beg administration to let me create my own program, so. She just took the LSATs, or law school admission test, and she actually took it twice, but during her second go in probably one of the most relatable 2020 pandemic Wi-Fi moments. The first time it was good, the second time my Wi-Fi connection died and I had to cancel my test score, so. From what I know about Tessa, I think that even with just one set of LSAT scores, she'll probably be fine. <laughs> Tessa is in the Arts Leadership Certificate Program, and this past fall, she arranged a special internship with Ari to learn more about how to marry her interests of music and law. And as you'll hear, Ari was the perfect person to learn from. 
The two fields aren't as disparate as you think, and Tessa and Ari's conversations reveals a side of music that maybe more musicians should think about, especially in the ever-changing media landscape with YouTube, Spotify, and whatever might be coming next. So now that you've heard the opening argument, we'll hear Tessa cross-examine our witness and find out more about how Ari made the switch from orchestra manager to lawyer, and what types of things he works on that affect musicians in today's world. Now, as usual, I will try to leave the interview uncut and uninterrupted, but stay tuned at the end. Um, Ari had some great advice for students who may have questions about copyright and licensing, and there's some wonderful resources that you can and really should use rather than just Googling the answer. So stick around to hear that. Anyway, here's Tessa and Ari. All right, so I just have a few questions. Um, but first question is, I guess, um, before going to law school, you worked with a few orchestras. So could you tell us a little bit more about your time in the classical music world? I look back on my time with symphony orchestras uh, with incredible fondness and appreciation. It, it's absolutely the basis for what I do now. And the fact actually that I can do what I do now as a lawyer and still be involved in the classical music industry is to me um, the great reward of, of this work. Um, so I started out <clears throat> as an intern uh, in the San Francisco Symphony's public relations department. Um, this was at a time when, um, this is about 2000, and my job at the time was to come into Davies Symphony Hall twice a week and to cut and paste the newspaper articles that would be written about the San Francisco Symphony, uh, usually reviews written by Josh Cosman, feature articles uh, written about upcoming guest artists who were performing or about Michael Tilson Thomas. Uh, and, uh, and then articles that would appear about MTT and the San Francisco Symphony at, you know, in the Miami Herald because of his relationship with New World Symphony. So my job was to cut and paste all these articles. I would paste them onto pieces of white paper, uh, legal size paper. I would compile them all, go into the copy room, and I would photocopy them into a single press packet that would be distributed to all of the senior leadership of the San Francisco Symphony's administration and board. So that was my job. Um, of course, my job became obsolete <laughs> at the very same time uh, because Google um, had just been uh, invented or started as a company a couple of years before. And so um, but for me, it was really a way into understanding um, the classical music business and how orchestras function as, as um, nonprofit institutions, as arts organizations, as ambassadors of their community, um, and really as this hub of cultural life. Um, in, in this case, the San Francisco Symphony being kind of the hub of the classical music community in, in the Bay Area. And so um, I was also a member of the San Francisco Symphony Youth Orchestra at the time. I was still performing as an oboist um, in the YO. And it was from there that uh, I went into the League of American Orchestras um, Orchestra Management Fellowship Program. I applied and was accepted 
Um, I was a little bit entrepreneurial at the time. I was both, you know, the PR intern at the San Francisco Symphony and then intern with the Berkeley Symphony Orchestra. And I was the orchestra manager of our university symphony orchestra. So it sort of felt like I couldn't get enough of orchestra management. And I wondered how I actually get my, got my academic work done. Um, but it was clear that I loved classical music and just wanted to be around it in whatever way that I could. So I uh, did participate in the orchestra management fellowship program and there worked at the Aspen Music Festival. Um, the fellows at the time, each one would manage one of the orchestras. So I was the manager of the Aspen Chamber Symphony. Uh, so for nine weeks, I worked with all the different guest conductors who came through and all the different guest artists and who came through. And quite honestly, it was, um, it was life-changing because that's where I met, you know, uh, conductors like Osmo Vanska and uh, David Zinman and David Robertson and, um, you know, Joanne Paletta and, you know, sort of all of these wonderful musicians um, who come together every year in the summertime in Aspen and make music. And those relationships have really carried with me um, all from that time. Um, I think that's one of the most um, special parts about working in, in classical music are these special relationships that we form with our fellow artists and musicians and colleagues across the country. So I, I did that for the summer and then I worked at the Pacific Symphony uh, in Orange County, California, and then the Dayton Philharmonic. And then I finished the year with the Pittsburgh Symphony uh, in, in Pittsburgh. And uh, then I, I was offered my first position as executive director of the Pensacola Symphony Orchestra. Um, so yeah, you know, the work really continued on from there. I, I dug into orchestra management, um, learned, you know, uh, every aspect of what it takes to see these organizations come together and flourish in their communities and it was through that work that I, I you know, found a curiosity uh, in the law. Awesome. Sounds like you were doing a lot. <laughs> um, so that actually brings me to my next question. Um, what made you decide to go to law school and pursue intellectual property law? And what was involved in making that switch from musician or orchestra director to um, lawyer? Yeah, you know, it, 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 it was not one of those light bulb moments. I think it, it, it was, um, it's something that started out as a, um, a combination of a curiosity. I really wasn't even looking to make a career change. Um, I, in my time with the Portland Symphony Orchestra a number of years later, we were um, deep in collective bargaining with our musicians and um, the task of actually taking all the things that we had discussed at the collective bargaining table and actually integrating them into the collective bargaining agreement had to fall to someone. And uh, that someone happened to be me, <laughs> uh, you know, the person who had both participated in the negotiations and also needed to try to find a way to put all of this into language that um, all the parties could understand and agree to. And it was really in that process that I both kind of connected with, I would say the art of lawyering and then also, you know, our actual lawyer, um, our labor attorney who 
we spent a lot of time thinking about what it was that we were putting in writing, what the consequences of that would be, um, whether it was clear, um, and uh, what it would mean to follow this language in years to come. And, and so the process of actually both negotiating, documenting, and um, you know, working through a, what is you know, functionally and practically a legal process you know, really fell into my lap. Um, it was also at the same time that we, I wondered a lot about just um, media and like why, why did media seem so complicated um, within classical music, like why did it seem, why did it seem so challenging to record the orchestra and to put that out in a form that our audiences could um, engage with? In fact, we had a, a volunteer at the time who came and took the symphony's entire archive of tapes and digitized them so that we could release a two CD donor thank you set to our donors. And it was at that point in time that we really had to engage with the question of, you know, what uh, did our uh, musicians allow us to do uh, under our collective bargaining agreement in terms of creating a media product. So um, that's where the, the curiosity started. Um, I then, we then, I, I moved to Philadelphia and worked at the Philadelphia Orchestra and um, dug very heavily into the orchestra's, you know, strategic plan or the work that we were doing to move the orchestra forward financially and artistically. We had a new music director, been announced, Yannick. Um, and same question came up, you know, the orchestra had this legacy with Eugene Ormandy of recording, you know, all of these works in the catalog. And at one time, those recordings were a very substantial source of income for the Philadelphia Orchestra, and yet that had changed. And so same thing, like media was, was a part of the question um, that I was working through. And then of course, you know, it was, was publicly um, reported. I mean, the Philadelphia Orchestra went through a very challenging period, um, ultimately um, filing for chapter 11 bankruptcy, and then moving through that process, and then coming out of bankruptcy. And so um, my job at the time really was to um, be working uh, almost at the center of that process between the orchestra administration and our team of lawyers and you know, my colleagues in our senior leadership um, to weave together a business and legal process that would help the orchestra to emerge in a more financially stable position. So everything that I touched every day had a legal implication to it, whether it be real estate leases, um, pensions, our collective bargaining agreement, the media issues, um, employment matters, um, uh, every aspect of it, even down to, you know, the bylaws of the Philadelphia Orchestra, you know, every aspect had some legal hook to it. And so it was really at that point in time where I had said, well, you know, I think I would like a graduate degree. And I didn't feel like an undergraduate degree was, was enough. Um, my, my undergraduate, undergraduate degree being in, um, 
classical languages from UC Berkeley. And I felt like I needed another degree. And I debated between an MBA or a law degree and ultimately settled on a law degree because it felt to me like that was going to help me fill gaps in my knowledge that would allow me to be a more articulate um, and more effective leader. And I, I think at the end of the day, my decision to go to law school was really driven by a desire to be um, a, a more attuned and considerate leader um, given the complexity of issues that orchestras were facing and, and have continued to face. So it was that question that led me to law school and, and I simply, we simply just decided to come back to Maine where we had been living before as just the place for me to go. So I saw law school really as a means to an end. It was just how do I um, obtain a law degree in order to get to the next stage without actually fully thinking through um, what that next stage would be, given that one doesn't usually go to law school without simply acknowledging that you're going to become a lawyer. <laughs> so um, so I, I went through law school without really knowing actually um, how, um, whether I would practice law and not only whether I would practice law, but like what area of law I would focus on. And it, it wasn't until I um, left law school and joined a law firm and started to think about this question of how do I weave together my prior life and my law degree that all of a sudden what emerged to the surface was intellectual property. And it became clear that for me, intellectual property was the area of law that would allow me to both um, provide service to clients in the form of legal services, um, but also be able to bring forward all of the you know, individual and practical knowledge that I had of working in classical music um, to the clients that I, that I work with um, on a day-to-day -day basis. That's awesome. Um, so you talked about your time in law school a little bit. Um, is there any advice that you would give a student considering a profession in law? Well, I, I think, I think it is to approach it uh, first with that sense of curiosity uh, and for students who are thinking about law practice to be thinking about what is it about the law that um, attracts them to studying law? Is it the ability to um, serve people who are underserved? Is it the ability to um, engage in um, a, um, uh, exactly sort of a professional services capacity that allows you to work with, you know, leaders of an organization or decision makers? Um, I think that, you know, we, we don't realize how much we hear about the law every day on the news and in, you know, in the newspaper and um, recognizing that uh, you know, a lawyer plays a role in that process um, you know, may draw a, you know, an individual to law school to say, how do I get closer to answering you know, those questions of what role the law plays in our system and, and our economy. Um, but in terms of, Individual practical advice. I think it is, you know, is there? Can you sit in on some, you know, some law school classes? 
nearby and um, just audit and listen to the kind of the nature of the conversation and talk to students and meet professors. I think, you know, one of the phrases that I use a lot with clients and generally is due diligence. And it applies for law school too. If you're thinking about law school, do you, how can you do your due diligence by interviewing the law school, right? That you may be going to and saying, is this law school a good fit for me? You know, you think they're interviewing you, you're interviewing them. <laughs> and, uh, and the more that you can approach not only that decision, but I think other key professional decisions with that kind of a mindset, um, I think the closer you'll get to kind of what it is that you want to do and what's a good fit for you. Definitely, I think that's great advice. So thank you. <laughs> um, so you mentioned before um, that media is constantly changing and so is technology. Um, so what is it like being an intellectual property lawyer during COVID, especially with the boost in virtual performances and at-home music production? Well, even before, even before the pandemic, um, the, if we just take music um, and kind of the arc of music over the last 20 years, we had Napster, you know, arrive <laughs> in the early 2000s. And, and that was our first kind of big tension between music and technology and intellectual property. <laughs> um, and it just so happened that I, at that time, was working at Tower Records. So I would... I would go to work at Tower Records in the evening as a part-time, you know, as a student, as a part-time job. And then I would go home to the, you know, dorm and my, all of my fellow students were downloading the very same CDs that we were selling in the store. So you, you knew something was not lined up. Um, and sure enough, you know, that, that has transpired because of copyright, because of intellectual property. And then, you know, then technology shifted and, and then music changed and uh, Apple introduces, you know, the iPhone and, and um, the iPod at the time, you know, to carry all of this music, you know, we used to carry used to carry our music in like CD binders, you know, <laughs> to be able to hear multiple pieces of music at any given time. You'd hear these stories of people like leaving their CD binder in their car and it being stolen. You know, that, that couldn't even happen anymore. <laughs> um, so anyway, um, yeah, I think that this relationship between music and intellectual property and technology has been playing out over the, you know, it's been playing out for a hundred years, but, you know, in our lifetime, the last 20 years. Um, and so then streaming rises as a source of, you know, consumption of music since, you know, the, in the last four or five years. And then all of a sudden the pandemic hits and, you know, what we, what music has relied on, which is the live performance experience is suddenly, you know, in most cases actually illegal. Like one cannot put on a concert. Um, and, and if you think about that for a moment, it's, it's pretty kind of, you know, um, remarkable. So um, coming into the pandemic, there was this question of how will everybody, you know, maneuver into a virtual space 
and what are they going to need to do in order to both you know succeed or continue as an artist and to sustain themselves in their, as an artist but also comply with the law so here was another moment in time when technology and music and intellectual property and now global events are coinciding in a way that are totally unpredictable and that's how it's how innovation happens it's how organizations evolve um, and so what an interesting time to be an intellectual property lawyer because all of a sudden these new questions have come up about what can you do with music in a digital setting how do you go about it who do you need to talk to what rights do you need um, and I've, I was saying to someone recently that it just so happens that you know we happen to launch our our you know our law firm at the very same time when um, organizations, classical music organizations, presenters, artists across the country were suddenly interested in copyright. And so it's, it's really um, resulted in an incredible opportunity to work with some amazing clients across the country um, on thinking about uh, the role that copyright plays and licensing plays in evolving their strategy of, of not just survival, but I think you know, will be a permanent shift in the way that arts organizations present themselves to their communities and their audiences. So that's just the music piece. Above and beyond that is, as an entertainment lawyer, um, I consider myself a bit of a generalist. So I work in film and TV, literary publishing, music, digital media. So everything from podcasting to how books are being published to how media is being distributed on TV and um, on digital and social platforms. All of that is at play um, on, on any given day. So uh, it's been really exciting. And I think it's, it's going to continue to evolve um, as we move through this. Definitely. Um, the Black Students Union at Eastman actually over the summer put on a virtual performance. Um, and we were super lucky to have Ari help us obtained some licenses um, for the music that we wanted to perform. So that was really exciting. Thank you again. <laughs> yeah. And actually, I'll, I'll mention, I think what you, Tessa, and the Black Students Union accomplished there was central to recognizing that digital performances have lowered the barriers to access that um, remove and I think, you know, help to address issues of continued oppression in communities and cultures and races that have not been able to present themselves or their music um, up until now. So I think, you know, that kind of um, movement is what we're seeing. And the, the digital platform is opening up access in ways, you know, to music and to people and to you know, individuals of diverse backgrounds that we haven't seen yet before in classical music. So you were, you were on the cutting edge of helping to make that happen. Yeah, it was an exciting project. So hopefully we can have more of those going forward. Um, awesome. So you also are an adjunct professor in law and music at Eastman. Um, what made you decide to pursue teaching and lecturing here as well? I, I love teaching. I'm, I am so honored. Uh, to be a part of the Eastman community in particular. Um, I feel fortunate to be able to work directly with students in Rochester and now really globally um, because there is, 
this amazing combination of students who have incredible musical skill and at the same time, enormous curiosity to understand how to apply those skills in multiple ways. And so Eastman has, has been um, wonderful uh, about, and the IML program um, in particular, creating space for um, musicians to explore those interests as leaders and as, um, as uh, future practitioners. And for me, I feel like equipping students with knowledge of copyright and the impact of law and music um, is um, absolutely vital to you know their their success as future professionals. So I um, I what I love about teaching is it 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 first of all <laughs> keeps me on my toes in ensuring that I stay up uh, on what's happening and uh, in in each of the areas that we cover in in the class, uh, we talk about everything from contract negotiations to nonprofits to music publishing and recording and licensing. And so it allows me to have a space in which to share that knowledge. And I learn from the students. They, they ask questions, they think about things in new ways. I've um, been amazed with some of the projects that students have submitted as part of the class of thinking about how to be entrepreneurial. Um, and for me, the teaching is where I get to take kind of what I do every day and, and share that knowledge in a meaningful way um, with, with the students in the Eastman community. We're super lucky to have you here at Eastman. Um, and I just have one last question for you then. Um, are there any skills that you brought with you from your career in music over into your career in law? <laughs> Uh, instrumentation. <laughs> I, uh, I work with a lot of composers and um, I, I'm, uh, when we talk about commissioning agreements, I think I understand <laughs> uh, what they're trying to put on the page, uh, hopefully a little bit more than the average lawyer. Um, uh, but in a more, in a more practical and, and serious uh, sense, um, you know, I, I think um, listening is what comes to mind. You know, I, I think that as musicians, we're trained to be good listeners. Um, and as a, as a legal professional, as a lawyer, I feel like a lot of my job often is, is to listen carefully for both what's being said and what's not being said. And it's kind of like, you know, uh, the rests in the music, you know, can be as meaningful as the notes on the page. And so that listening translates into having a sensitivity to the challenges that clients are facing, having a, an ear for what their goals are. Um, and then also um, listening carefully to what the actual facts are um, that really govern so much of what we do in the law. Uh, you know, the law is, is a, is a tool. It's a framework. Um, it's a mechanism for helping to sort out um, agreements and understandings, rights and obligations between parties. And if we don't have a solid, um, or hopefully good grasp of the facts, then it makes it very difficult to do that. And I feel like music 
um, causes you to engage and to listen and to take into account other people's points of view um, by nature, right? You're as a musician, you're listening to the soloist, you're following the conductor, you're listening to the other people on stage and you're pulling all of that information in and inspiration in to be able to create your own artistic product. And so one of the interesting or unique things that I, I love about the law is that I, I can bring my own voice to the process just in the way, just as a musician can bring his or her own voice to a performance. And uh, I have valued that in the course of the work that I do with clients. And also, um, you know, and actually now that I think about it, I always felt like my job as an orchestra manager was to ensure that our musicians on stage and the conductor, the members of our board, that, that they shined, that, that they were successful in fulfilling their roles. And I feel like my job as a lawyer is exactly the same. It's to help um, clients to fulfill their vision and their inspiration and achieve their goals. And I'm just um, uh, uh, the kind of orchestra manager backstage um, helping to make that happen. Yeah, that's awesome. I think it's a really great way to look at things. <laughs> um, so those are all the questions that I had for you. Um, I'm not sure if Stephen has any, but thanks so much for allowing us to interview you. <laughs> thank you, thank you. And and I'll just point out, Tessa has been an amazing pre-law intern with our firm. And we're so lucky to have you as a, not just student, but participant in um, the growth of the firm, but also hopefully giving you some insight into what it is to um, practice law. So thank you for your, your service. Yeah, it's been really fun working with you. Special thanks to Ari Solotov for donating his time to talk with us. And thank you to Tessa for coming up with those questions and just being game to conduct this interview for the podcast. Now, I mentioned that Ari had some advice um, after the interview, specifically about Googling for answers you might have about copyright or intellectual property. If you're going to Google for anything, please Google for uh, lawyers for the arts with whatever state you happen to live in. <laughs> uh, you know, lawyers for the arts, Massachusetts, lawyers for the arts, Washington, lawyers for the arts, Indiana, um, you're likely to find uh, you know, the volunteer lawyers for the arts in your particular state where there is a way into getting some preliminary legal assistance uh, with some of these questions without having to break the bank uh, to do it. The first question, if you sort of the advice I give to folks is if you think you have a legal issue, you probably do. <laughs> and so, yeah, I, I think I'd rather suggest to students and others that they err on the side of contacting a lawyer if they think they have a question than suggesting that they try to Google for the answer. We'll include some links in the show notes to help get you started, but there are countless organizations there to offer free or very affordable advice to members of the arts community. So be sure to take advantage of that and stay curious about this side of the music industry. 
Today's show was mixed by Frances Inzenhofer. She also helped clean up the transcript for the show, which you can find in the show notes. Intro music and incidental music was by me, and the outro music was composed by Alexa Silverman. As always, if you have questions, comments, or ideas for a future episode, please contact me via my email in the show notes. You can follow us on SoundCloud or follow the IML on Facebook to get updates about upcoming episodes. And what would be super helpful is if you enjoyed this episode or other episodes we've done, if you found the content helpful or interesting, please share with friends, share on social media, help get the word out. Um, A recommendation from a listener is such a huge help. So if you end up sharing, uh, it would mean the world to us. Go out, make art, do good work. From the IML, I'm Stephen Bigner. Until next time.